Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And speaking from Washington, D.C., this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront, analyze Russia's local elections, and discuss learnings from the air war in Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kiev, and I can report, Kiev stands strong. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 11th of September, one year and 199 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, from Colorado, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, in Washington, D.C., with me, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, in the U.K., foreign correspondent, James Kilner, from Ukraine, senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and today, our guests are program director of the Institute for Future Conflict at the U.S. Air Force Academy, Dr. Tony Tingle, and retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier, David Stilwell. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Joining you here for Colorado Springs, 6 a.m. The sun is not yet up over the mountains, but that should come up any minute now, we are told. So I'll start off with the news. I'll go over the weekend updates shortly. But first, let's talk about a couple of things that's breaking this morning. Ukraine has regained control of several offshore drilling platforms close to Crimea. That's from the SBU, Ukraine's military intelligence. Um, They say troops have retaken the drilling platforms that are known as the Boyko Towers, in what they described a, as a unique operation. These platforms um, have been occupied since 2015 by Russia. They have been used for military purposes since the start of the full-scale invasion last year. Now let's go east into the Donbass. And Ukraine is said to have, uh, well, forced its way into Andrivka. And those words, forced its way, coming from one of the more reliable Russian telegram channels. So Andrivka is near Bakhmut in the east. A number of pro-Russian blog channels are reporting this. Rybar, for example, said in the southwest of Bakhmut, Ukrainian units are conducting active operations near Andrivka. Russian troops were forced to withdraw towards prepared positions near the railway line. The railway line runs north-south through Bakhmut uh, and further down through Andrivka. And then another prominent channel, War Gonzo. And I say this is a bit like um, a stop clock telling the correct time twice a day. Some of these channels we think actually are 
on the money with some of the information. War Gonzo says in the Bakhmut direction, the Ukrainian armed forces entered Andreevka. So we've known for some time that Russia has been taking some of its more experienced troops out of Bakhmut to uh, reinforce the south. And it looks like that pressure is starting to pay off there. Now, separately, Ukraine has is now within a couple of miles of retaking the Donetsk airport, which it lost to the Russian-backed separatists in 2015. So this comes from Hannah Malia, the uh, deputy defence minister. She said a prominent village, um, Obitina, in uh, uh, just near Donetsk, is, has been retaken two miles from the from what was uh, the region's international airport. She said the forces had some success around Klishkiva and Andrivka, uh, which is all in, in the same area. Now down to the south and the sort of main area of the of the counteroffensive, and Ukrainian troops are pushing east of Novopropakivka. So that is the that big salient that is is taking shape down in the south. The Novopropakivka is the well, this is as per the, the Institute for the Study of War. So this is about 18 k's southeast of Orokiv, which was the almost the start line, if you like. Hanamalia again, she said they've had partial success there. And, uh, and continued to push south. Ukrainian Pravda, is say, that, who's the head of Donetsk's military administration, is saying that there has been success in the south near that village, and in his opinion, that's very significant. Now, they are talking about success pushing there into the east and to the south. Russia has said, the Russian defence ministry said it has repelled multiple attacks uh, over the weekend. So that sort of ties in with what we're, what we're seeing there. But then over the weekend, Russia fired nearly three dozen drones at Kyiv early yesterday morning, early Sunday morning. Ukraine's air force said it shot down 26 of 33 Iranian-made Shahid drones, the 131 and the 136, uh, at Kyiv and the area around it. A number of fragments fell on different parts of the city. This comes from uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the city's mayor. No uh, immediate numbers of uh, of damage or or individuals wounded there. However, elsewhere, the dozens of settlements have been shelled over the weekend, and that has resulted in civilian death and injury. Nine regions over across Sunday, which with 106 settlements hit, dead and wounded among the civilians. Now, on Saturday, UN experts at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant said that there were numerous explosions took place. Well, so they reported on Saturday, but said the the reports had been over the last week. And the the director general of the uh, IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that's uh, Rafael Grossi, he said, I remain deeply concerned about the possible dangers facing the plant at this time of heightened military tension in the region. Uh, Whatever happens in a conflict zone, whatever it may be, everybody would stand to lose from a nuclear accident. And I urge all necessary precautions must be taken to avoid it happening. Uh, And then uh, a couple more things. On Sunday, a Spanish foreign aid director uh, was killed after a van uh, transporting a team of four was hit by a Russian fire. So Emma Igual, who, who was 32, she was the director of Road to Relief. She was traveling with a team to, she was on the outskirts of Bakhmut looking at the, the civilian need uh, when they were hit. Uh, Spain's foreign minister, Jose Manuel Alvarez, said on Sunday, a projectile fell on a vehicle in which the Spanish citizen was traveling. And uh, Canadian anti-Inhat also died in the attack. A German medical volunteer, Ruben Malvik, and Swedish volunteer, Johan Matthias Tyer, were injured in that. So, yeah, uh, more attacks on, on NGOs. And just finally for now, uh, news that uh, ATACM, so the Army Tactical Missile System, the long-range high-precision missile that has been much sought uh, from the U.S. by Ukraine, could be on the way. So U.S. media are suggesting that this missile, which 
It's got a range of about 200 miles. U.S. media reporting unnamed U.S. officials saying they are coming. He was speaking to ABC News. And a second official said the missiles are likely to be included in, in the next military aid package. However, even once once permission is given, it could be many months before uh, before Ukraine actually sees them. I'm going on Wednesday to the Picatinny Arsenal up in New Jersey, which is the organisation and the department that actually manages the the logistics side of sending the uh, the weapon packages out to Ukraine once they've been given presidential approval. So I'll be asking them up there. And I'll take a little pause there, David. Well, thanks very much, Dom. It's good to hear you survived your time in the woods. Uh, we'll come back maybe at the end to hear a little bit more about what you've seen and where you've been. Uh, Francis Sternley, can we come to you? What are the latest diplomatic and political stories we should be aware of? Well, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to finally be here in D.C. on a clear, crisp morning. Quite a contrast to the typical English weather we brought over with us from London when we flew in. You couldn't make it up, really. Within hours of landing, our umbrellas were out. Not what we expected. Anyway, we fired the starting gun for our trip by releasing a special episode over the weekend where the three of us interviewed General Petraeus, which has incredibly already been watched and listened to about 350,000 times. A real (laughs) shock to us. So thank you all very much for that. We have a lot of similarly interesting interviews lined up for the coming days, all three of us. But more importantly, as you say, it's been a very eventful weekend in geopolitics. As we speak, the Kremlin has confirmed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will visit Russia in the coming days after being invited by Putin. It doesn't specify where the summit will happen, but it's expected to take place in Vladivostok, where the Russian president is attending an economic conference. This is all part of the suspected deal to supply weapons for Russia's war in Ukraine. The North Korean leader is reportedly seeking satellite and nuclear submarine technology from Moscow in exchange for artillery shells and anti-tank missiles. More on that as we have it, although some are arguing it is revealing that the Russian strategy for winter and beyond seems to be indicative of some kind of offensive that they're trying to stockpile material for now, caring less about the quality of men and munitions and more about the quantity, the old Russian strategy. If so, it shouldn't come as a shock. As we've discussed in the past, Russia often starts wars badly, but is able to gather larger resources over time in the hope of turning the tide. But it could also be a political manoeuvre designed to show that Russia has no intention of reducing its commitment to this war. Now, James is going to lead on the G20 summit in India as he was covering it for The Telegraph over the weekend. But the top line that the G20 joint declaration stopped short of condemning Russia's war has inevitably caused frustration for Kyiv. Indeed, there are rather a lot of stories that have come out of the summit, despite the absence of Putin and President Xi of China, which make rather gloomy reading from the perspective of the Ukrainians. The Brazilian president said on Saturday that Putin wouldn't be arrested in Brazil if he attends the G20 summit in Rio de Janeiro next year. Mr. Lula said Putin would be invited to next year's event, adding that he himself planned to attend a BRICS block of developing nations meeting in Russia before the Rio meeting. So I'll quote from him. He said, I believe that Putin can go easily to Brazil. What I can say to you is that if I'm president of Brazil and he comes to Brazil, there is no way he will be arrested. Now, listeners will recall that the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant against Putin in March, accusing him of various war crimes, namely and particularly illegally deporting hundreds of children from Ukraine. Russia has denied this, uh, but Brazil, being a signatory to the Rome Statute, which 
led to the founding of the ICC, would be obligated under its rules to arrest Putin. But just because they're signed up to it doesn't mean that they have to. South Africa has also avoided doing it for various figures over the years. But nevertheless, I think the significance here really is the fact that Brazil are stating it so unequivocally. And that's what will come as a blow, I think, to the Ukrainians and and their Western counterparts. But there are shards of light too, which James will talk about. The South Korean president said yesterday the country will provide an additional $2 billion in aid to Ukraine starting in 2025 over the longer term, in addition to $300 million previously pledged for next year. It's a sign that the Indo-Pacific has answered the call, as it were. They recognise the dangers of an imperialist power being seen to benefit territorially via the means of war, it would leave them, of course, in the firing line. And as we've talked about in the past, Japan is also a very key player here, hence why Britain and uh, America and many other Western countries are forging much, much closer ties with Japan in the Indo-Pacific. Well, thanks, Francis. We'll come to James shortly. Before that, uh, there were some updates I know you wanted to talk about on the grain deal. Yes, well, Turkish President Erdogan has said that any initiative that isolates Russia from the Black Sea grain deal will not be sustainable. So he was speaking at the G20 in New Delhi and added that the grain deal was discussed at length there, but indicated that a decision hasn't yet been reached, despite the fact Russia, Ukraine and Turkey are continuing to discuss it. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, is dangling the carrot, as it were. He's saying that Russia will return to the Black Sea grain deal the same day as Moscow's conditions for export of its own grain fertilizers to global markets are met. It's very obvious what he's doing there. A G20 declaration called for full, timely and effective implementation to ensure the immediate and unimpeded deliveries of grain, foodstuffs and fertilisers from Russia and Ukraine to meet demand in developing countries. And it is understood that the UN, Turkey and this year's G7 chair Japan are trying to facilitate the resumption of grain supplies. Suffice to say, though, Ukraine opposes the idea of easing sanctions on Russia in order to revive a grain deal. And that's the core issue here. As I've said before, what exactly would the terms of that deal be? What sanctions might be reduced and how would Russia stand to benefit from it? Those are the key subjects of conversation at the moment. Now, staying on the theme of sanctions, whilst many European countries have indeed managed to successfully wean themselves off the direct importation of Russian oil and gas, one of the most remarkable stories and consequences of this war so far, and we haven't talked about it for a while, but it is remarkable compared to uh, the levels of uh, receiving of Russian oil and gas that, that, that Europe was dependent on before the start of this war. Um, But despite this, there are outliers. One of them is Austria. Austria's coalition government of conservatives and left-wing Greens say they are trying to shift away from Russia as a gas supplier, but the country faces obstacles. They've gone from about 80% dependency to 60% since the war began. But there are many who are critical of them and who argue that Austria is really trying to position itself uh, much as it did during the Cold War for reason of its geography and it's also uh, political positioning as a sort of neutral power are not going far enough. And in an interesting intervention, the EU's head diplomat in Vienna, Martin Silmeier, has called Austrian payments for Russian gas blood money, adding that as a rich country, Austria could afford to obtain energy from elsewhere like other states. And this row has exploded over the weekend and the European Commission, which Mr. Silmeier used to lead, 
has summoned him for a dressing down for an interview without coffee, to borrow the army phrase Dom used in the past. The Opposition Freedom Party, which is leading polls before elections next year, called for Mr. Silmar to be sacked. And as the row escalated, the European Commission issued a statement criticising its former head. They said the Commission distanced itself from the regrettable and inappropriate statements made by the head of the representation office in Austria. The Commission has asked him to report to Brussels immediately on the incident. So quite an interesting intervention, as I say, and one that I expect there'll be some further political fallout as a consequence. Lastly, just a quick one, since it was a core issue last week, Romania's foreign ministry has summoned its Russian counterpart to answer how drone debris ended up in Romanian territory. So Roland's sources were right. Pieces of drone were indeed found inside its border with Ukraine after explosions last week. According to the Romanian statement, the issue's Uh, The country's strategic affairs uh, secretary demanded that Russia stop attacking Ukrainians and said that uh, Romanian people near the border were threatened by said activity. So quite a noteworthy intervention in the context of our conversations last week. But that's where we are, David, at eight o'clock DC time. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Uh, Francis there mentioned this G20 joint declaration. James Kilner, you wrote this story up for The Telegraph over the weekend. What more can you tell us about this? How significant is this? Hi, David. I think this is very significant and gives an important, insightful, broader look at how the international community and not just the West view Russia and view the war in Ukraine. It has to be said it came as a surprise. This is the second G20 summit since the war started in February 2022. The previous was, one was in Bali last year. And at the, at the summit in Bali, the G20 communique ended with condemning the war against Ukraine. The communique after the summit in New Delhi over the weekend only mentioned the war in Ukraine and talked in, it never overtly criticised Russia. And it talked in terms of uh, the need to do more to guarantee grain supplies, the inadmissible talk about of using nuclear weapons, this sort of thing. It never went and criticised Russia for its invasion in February last year. Now, the Russians have been literally toasting this and celebrating this as a huge diplomatic success and a very rare diplomatic success for them. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, was there representing Vladimir Putin. He stayed in Moscow and he literally thanked his Indian friends for, for presiding over this change of language. There's also been some photos of him and Modi, the Indian prime minister, laughing and, and shaking hands, etc. And this has really infuriated the Ukrainians who have been talking about betrayal and, and described the G20 communique as nothing to be proud of. The Western leaders have been caught in a bit of a bind. They've got to obviously explain this change of language to their own domestic voters, uh, the domestic audience, and the rest of the uh, the rest of the world, the, who they're trying to pressure and, and cajole into joining sanctions against Russia. So the G20 is the 19 biggest economies in the world, plus the EU and the African Union. So they have the West has limited impact um, over the G20, and they've had to say, well, look, there's a clause in there saying that the territorial integrity of all countries must be respected and no other country can go around trying to challenge that sort of thing. These are very couched praises for the G20 communique, which I think all the commentators, analysts and journalists have said is a clear win for the Kremlin. 
Thanks very much for taking us through that, James. Can I stay with you? Over the weekend, you've been writing about the local elections that have taken place in Russia and in the occupied areas of Ukraine. Um, what can you tell us about the, the, this, this voting? What happened? Right. So these elections happened over three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and they're important because they give us an insight into what's going on in Russia. I mean, it, there are no international election monitors there, and obviously the media's very limited in how it can report. But it's nonetheless gives us some bones to pick through and, and try and get the measure of, of what people are thinking. It's also important because it's a sort of a trial run for the Kremlin, who also needs to test popular opinion and new vote voting techniques ahead of the presidential election in March next year. So these are elections across the country, uh, regions to voting governors, uh, local assembly me- uh, members and MPs of the National Duma in, in Moscow. Now, they're important because voter turnout, despite the Kremlin's best efforts, remains stubbornly low. And it also allowed, and the Kremlin also held elections for the first time in for occupied regions of Ukraine that are illegally annexed last year in an effort to show support for this for its occupation for its war in Ukraine. At the beginning of the election campaign, the United Russia Party, which is the political party of Vladimir Putin, had given official advice to its candidates to campaign hard on, the, on his war in, in Ukraine. Um, this appears to have completely backfired, and it, it dropped this uh, official advice uh, a week or two or three weeks before the actual voting. And opinion polls before the election came out also showed that support for Putin's war in Ukraine had dipped. They said that people who definitely supported the war in Ukraine was about 38% compared to about 48% in February. So there's a clear drop in, in, in people who support this invasion. Now, there's various sort of allegations of ballot fixing and pressure and bribery, etc. But one of the other characteristics of this election was a number of ballot papers that I saw photographed and posted on the Telegram Russian social media web, uh, website, which showed Russians who are not allowed to publicly protest and demonstrate against the Kremlin and against the war, uh, scrolling and scribbling over these ballot papers saying anti-war, Putin should get a trial, we're for peace, I'm for Ukraine, that sort of thing. So in the secret of their ballot paper, they were voicing some sort of protest. Of course, the actual results are fairly nebulous. Uh, the uh, the Kremlin won more or less across the board, as you'd expect. Um, the uh, exceptions are in the Siberian region of Akasia, which the Communist Party surprisingly won in the last local ele- in the last governor elections, rather. And the Communist Party incumbent there actually increased the share of his vote, despite the Kremlin's best efforts to unseat him. Their candidate in the region withdrew about ten days ago. Of the polls showed that he was going to lose, basically. And there's an, another couple of, there's, a, there's also a party in Russia called Yablika, which is a soft opposition party, social, likes to think of itself as a social democrat, liberal party, really had its heyday in the 1990s. Uh, it actually won a handful of seats on local assemblies in, city, in some cities in Russia on a for peace slogan. So there's clearly... As one analyst I was talking to today said, it's clearly uh, not a massive vote winner, this pre-war uh, element. The last final thing that listeners should be aware of with, with this election, and, and I'll wrap up right now, 
is that the Kremlin is really trying to road test this online voting technology. And Vladimir Putin himself released a video on Saturday of him voting online. They're trying to get more Russians to vote online. They thought this was going to increase the voter turnout. It didn't particularly. But also, as analysts pointed out to me, they're also road testing the online voting technique as it's, it's easier to manipulate and harder to monitor, which plays in the Kremlin's favour ahead of this presidential election in March. Well, thank you very much for giving us the lowdown there, James. Uh, well, from Washington to England to Ukraine, Roland Oliphant, our senior foreign correspondent, you're on the ground there. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll go to Dom and his guests shortly. But Roland, can you tell us a little bit about where you've been and what you've been reporting on in the past few days? Hello there, chaps. We've been mostly in Kiev. We've been driving around a little bit. The past few days has been one of kind of cups of coffee and listening and talking in Kiev. Over the weekend, we had the, the so-called YES, it used to be called the Yalta Dialogue Conference. It's basically this big kind of, I suppose you could call it Ukrainian Davos. So once a year, the great, the good, the rich, the influential all get together in Kiev and talk about things. It's obviously taken on a much bigger, more prominent role since, since the war broke out. So lots of big characters there new defence minister making his first appearance, General Budanov making some remarks, Boris Johnson showed up, all that kind of thing. I must say, I wasn't there myself, partly because I just find conferences absolutely insufferable, but I was out and about for a couple of days, meeting a lot of people, having conversations, and just <laughs> trying to get a sense in all kinds of ways of the temperature, really, in the capital of the diplomatic, the political, the strategic. So that's what we've been doing. Um, yeah, the weather's beginning to turn, not in a bad way, but it's getting a bit chillier at night. That's not just me writing a postcard home. That obviously has implications for the counteroffensive. I think we had, as General Milley said the other day, Ukraine's got maybe another 30, 35 days before you would expect the winter to to force a close to the counteroffensive. Budanov, that's the head of the GUR, the, the military intelligence, was saying, well, we'll push on regardless of that. I'm sure they will, or they'll try to, but that's a reality that can't really be escaped. The summer is slowly coming to an end. I've got a few thoughts, if you'd like to hear them, about what I think I've learned. Please, Roland. Yeah, we'd love to hear them. I think there's a bit of a split between the orthodoxy and what some people are kind of muttering, some people, when they're promised that it won't be repeated or they'll be identified. So the message coming out of the S conference, the message from officials, from employees of the government is very much the same as it always was. We fight to the end. There will be no compromise, all of that. Some other people I've spoken to, not people employed by the government, and I won't go into any more detail than that, but people who have no no little things about certain patches of this of this whole landscape have expressed genuine concern about casualties. And on two levels, one on the level of how many men are being lost at the front and how quickly they can be replaced, especially amongst highly trained kind of special operations units which of course are more more difficult to replace and the other the other thing is this more long-term thing and i must say that i've this isn't scientific right but so i was talking to one guy who said look the longer this goes on the fewer people are going to come back because well, we're not just losing people at the front people are abroad and they're building lives and they're finding their place in life and they're settling down and getting married and so the longer the war goes on um the more kind of depopulation. This wasn't someone saying we need to surrender or something because of this, but these are genuine concerns that are gnawing at people and they're thinking about. And I must say, I don't know, maybe maybe it's me seeing things, but driving around the roads, the highways, the cities, places like, I don't know, Odessa, Kiev, Dnipro, it's always been emptier than it was before the war. 
but you do find yourself beginning to think where where is everyone in a way so that that i think that's an anxiety that is genuine and being debated and i think when people are saying i'm sure people are it doesn't mean you're not committed to to ukrainian victory when that's talked about that there are concerns under the surface that i think are going on the other thing that i thought was noticeable is the kind of political discussions um going on so i had a couple of conversations where without prompting people so one person said to me one thing that that person was finding somewhat demotivating was the sense that politics is very much back people are talking about kind of internal intrigues people are talking about are there going to be elections aren't there going to be elections if so how are those elections going to be handled how is Zelensky going to manage servant of the people there's a one opinion going around that servant of the people just his party just is not very popular anymore at all although he is so there's rumors about team Zelensky creating a different political machine and things like that so a lot of that kind of thing also going on in the background and then over all of this is a kind of lot what would you say macro is what the economists say isn't it? it's quite an ugly word there's this context in which there's almost a shift which hasn't quite happened yet but you can feel people or the conversation moving towards acceptance of a longer war and you'll have seen Vladimir Zelensky's interview with the economist uh, which came out was it today yesterday the day before in which he basically says that is what we have to start thinking about and being morally prepared for and he talks about in that interview he talks about how that would require a new social contract it's not yet at the point where he has to go to the country and kind of talk about that social contract but people talking about next year comes after that i spoke to one one person who does work for the government said to me don't ask me about how long it's going to take you don't think about that you're fighting for your life like time time isn't something we're thinking about where we're carrying on and on and if you actually look at the kind of at ukraine's kind of diplomatic game they're not expecting immediate breakthroughs but they're looking at ways to in the long term bring countries around to their point of view countries that maybe weren't there before so i believe dmitry kuleba the foreign minister is planning yet another trip to africa sometime later this year and you've seen that series of meetings and the last one was in saudi arabia with countries who are not necessarily obviously of the western alliance but that is designed to to bring countries on board with to just get them engaged with the idea of this 10-point peace plan that president zelensky has promoted the, the ukrainian peace formula so I, i kind of get the sense that everything is coalescing around this acceptance acceptance kind of readiness for a long haul Well, it's wonderful to hear you again, Roland, and thank you for your thoughts. If possible, it'd be great to come back to you later just to maybe talk a little bit about your thoughts on the Russian local elections and the elections held in occupied um, Ukraine. That's what Francis and James were talking about before. But thanks so much for joining. Dom Nichols, can I go to you and your guests? Tell us a little bit about where you are and how you got there. Yeah, so I'm here in Colorado Springs. Dawn is literally breaking now across the Rocky Mountains. It is today, of course, the 22nd anniversary of the 9/11 attacks on America. I'm going to after we finish here, I've been invited down to Fort Carson, which is just on the south side of the city for the 9/11 commemoration there. But I'm joined now by Dr. Anthony Tingle and retired US Air Force Brigadier General David Stilwell, both from the Academy's Institute of Future Conflict here which operates with support through the the non-profit Air Force Academy Foundation and we've been chatting about specifically air and space power that's the the, the focus here I will talk later about uh, or maybe some other time about the what I've done over the weekend but for now I'd like to have introduced uh, introduce the guests and have a quick uh, quick chat about about air power 
Gentlemen, welcome, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for getting up at this very early hour here. I'm, I'm fascinated by what's happening in the air domain, air and space domain in, in the, the war in Ukraine. Are we seeing any new lessons here or just relearning old lessons for stars? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I would say that it, we are learning some lessons. Um, I don't know if the Telegraph has covered the video that came out this week about the Ukrainians using first-person drones to hunt K-52 alligators now. So they're actually, there's a video out there, and I, I just assume it's real. They're trying to chase down alligators with these first-person drones. They attack helicopters. Right. Um, and they are also using anti-tank landmines. They've always been dropping grenades from UAVs. Now they're dropping anti-tank landmines, which causes a huge boom. So instead of dropping the grenade inside the open hatch of the T-80 and blowing it up after they have a mobility kill, now they can affect the tank with the drone and actually destroy it with the drone instead of just finishing it off. So there are some lessons that we're learning. I listened to the uh, General Petraeus interview you guys did, and I, I, for the most part, I think he's got a pretty good view of the future of, of combat with AI, smaller instruments using ISR to see the entire battlefield and hitting everything that's out there. What he didn't really touch on was the cost curve. So we're now attacking $5 million tanks with $1,000 drones and $50 grenades. So that, that has to be an impact on the, on the future battlefield, especially when we go into some of these third world countries where they've, they've learned these asymmetrical lessons. And I think that's going to have a big impact. Uh, thanks, Tony. Is that General Stillwell, what's your area of focus here at the, uh, the Academy and, and with the Institute? And what have, you, what have you been looking at through in terms of air and space from Ukraine? So I'm focused on the Chinese aspect of all this. I'm the chair for the Institute for Future Pacing Threats, the National Defense Strategies language for China. And the focus on this has to do not so much with the kinetic aspects, but with the information aspects of this war in the PRC. How is the PRC perceiving this? How are they changing their approach on this? You saw that uh, Xi Jinping offered his own peace plan, which was promptly rejected by both sides. China wants to be a world player, and this is how they think they can do it. What's interesting, though, is that had this gone the way Ukraine went in 2014, in February 2022, I think the PRC was ready to, to apply the same lessons to a Taiwan scenario. And the fact that it's gone so badly for Putin, uh, you can see in their language, has definitely dampened their ardor, their desire to go after Taiwan. You see how hard these sorts of operations really are. And as Tony just mentioned, it's no longer Desert Storm or what we used to think of as large-scale uh, warfare. It is everything from drones all the way to satellites to Starlink. And I think Starlink's uh, contribution in this, in the, in the information space, uh, has not really been assessed. Uh, it, it's been enormously impactful. I mean, just on that, we spoke about Starlink earlier on and uh, Elon Musk's input or his, his position there. Now, of course, he's a civilian. And you could say that he is in legal terms, making a directly participating in hostilities, which is a legal term, but you then start talking about Geneva Conventions and whether or not he personally is is legally targetable. So how do you see the rise of corporations and multi-billionaire individuals having an impact on 
on modern warfare because it's only going in one direction, isn't it? Well, again, I'm a member of the Institute for Future Conflict, and this is an idea that the future needs to consider is as the, again, as we move away from the Cold War aspect where you had a, a, a wall and a fall to gap and the two forces completely separated, today everything is involved. Everything, from, as Tony's mentioned, uh, UAVs, small weapons, big weapons, F-16s, ATACMs, but you've also got just things like information. So people who move information and who have information capability are now having to decide at what point does my provision of information leave the peaceful civilian and move into the Geneva Convention level warfare uh, concept? We have to think about these things and where that division line is. How do you protect Starlink and, and Musk from doing what they're doing? And where does that line from civilian to combatant, where you draw that line, that decision hasn't been made yet. Tony, you're going to add something? Yeah, I'll just. From just the technology perspective, we've been moving away from government having a, a propensity of the technology and the capability and commercial technology increasing uh, for a while now, but I think this war has really highlighted that fact, whether it's being drones, artificial intelligence with Palantir, Starlink. We're seeing the preeminence of civilian technology, where you take that civilian technology and you just add some military component, mostly explosives, on top of it. And that's really tipping the balance to the civilian industry. And one of the concerns of air power has been the been F-16s, the, the argument about sending F-16 for, um, into Ukraine, gifting to Ukraine. And I know you've got some specific thoughts on this, Tony, but it's not the, it's not the, no pun intended, it's not the silver bullet. But what are your thoughts here? Is it going to make a big impact? I think it's going to make an impact. I don't think anyone believes that it's going to end the war, obviously, but there's a couple of benefits to the F-16. It's obvious a moral boost to the Ukrainians. Um, it's going to support the counteroffensive. The F-16 will support the counteroffensive in some capacity. And I think it might help to draw out the Russian Air Force uh, a little bit more. They still have roughly 80% of their Air Force uh, that's still viable. And I think it'll help draw them out and uh, may make an impact uh, in the Russian Air Force. And if it gets to the negotiation phase, I think the F-16 is going to be a great leverage point for the Ukrainians. Um, but what I think the Ukrainians are starting to realize, and, and it's not really publicized much, is it's more the training than the, the weapon system. And the Ukrainians learned that early on in the counteroffensive in May. So they waited three or four months to train the Western brigades on Western armor. And then they, I think they just put too much faith into it. And we had that incident in Malatakmachka where we lost some leopards and we lost some Bradleys. And uh, one report says they lost 20% of their Western equipment uh, early on. So they realized that combined arms is more than just uh, having the equipment. And that transfers to the F-16, too. Um, it, it's about the training, but what kind of missiles are we going to get on the F-16? If it's the Ukrainians are already arming their MiG-29s with harm missiles and JDAM, so they figured out a way to do that. Um, but will the Ukrainians get uh, the AIM-9X Sidewinder? And are they going to get the AIM-120 AMRAAM that costs about $1.5 a piece, and it can hit targets out to 100 miles? So it's not just the airframe. It's also the radar and the missiles and the training.
Sure is. Now, General Stilwell, you used to fly F-16, so I'll be really interested in your view on that. And also, as Tony was saying earlier on, if you've now got drones, $1,000 drones being flown at, I don't know how many million dollar KA-52 alligator attack helicopters, I mean, it just brings into focus the economic side of it. And where do you see the military moving in terms of GPS weapons against huge fourth generation fighters and more? So I will never disparage the mighty F-16. It's a fantastic airplane. Uh, and it's very capable in any number of scenarios. You've seen what it's done in Baghdad or in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but the problem is that the mentality that we all share, the, thing, the mentality we've all grown up with since the end of the Cold War in 1991, has been permissive operations. Uh, even in Desert Storm, we quickly wiped out their enemy air defenses, radars, missiles, and all those things. I mean, we definitely suffered some casualties. But as you move then into uh, enduring freedom, Iraqi freedom, and the rest, we've been operating in a permissive environment. The, the environment in this condition, in this uh, episode in Ukraine, is not permissive, and so there are still high-level uh, surface-to-air missile capabilities and the rest, which makes us have to rethink uh, where we are. There's going to take an entire shift in mentality for militaries from all sides, and Ukraine's actually done a good job of leading the way on that. The second part of that is the F-16 in and of itself uh, is not that capable in uh, identifying and, and targeting. You still need people on the ground or capabilities in the air like drones to actually get you some high-level GPS coordinates to go find at least maybe get your eyeballs on a dumb weapon that's just a gravity bomb or to program a GPS weapon that's going to go after that, whether you're going to shoot it or just drop it. Again, bang for buck, you're better off hanging a whole bunch of gravity bombs on the F-16 vice trying to shoot missiles. You can shoot those missiles more efficiently from the ground, and those missiles are going to be targeted with GPS data coming off of drones. Does that make sense? So the F-16 has very uh, capability. It, in the information space, it's a great message to the world and to Ukraine and to Russia is that the U.S. is not afraid to get involved in this and to help out the Ukraine in resisting this illegal uh, invasion and all the rest, get Russia back to the negotiating table. But to think of F-16s in terms of its you know, former glory, where I grew up, it is not going to have that same effect without significant support in terms of targeting defense, as Tony mentioned. If it's sitting on the ramp, it's vulnerable. If the runways get cratered, they're vulnerable. Uh, and so it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve everything. And I know David wants to ask you a question, so I'll hand over him, to him in a second. But I'd, I'd invite you possibly in your answer. So the, the, your point there about it might be better to have the have the long-range precise missiles fired from the ground rather than have all the infrastructure and the risk of putting an airframe. So I'll hand over to David now. Well, thanks very much, Dom, and thank you so much to our guests for joining us today. Yeah, just two sort of maybe linked questions. I just wanted to ask, obviously, we talk about uh, Western military forces training the Ukrainians, but we've heard a lot more in the past few months about what uh, Western militaries can learn from the fact that Ukraine is fighting a sort of peer rival war. For both of you, what do you think you personally have learned from the Ukrainian armed forces? And then secondly, Dom talked about the price of some of these dual purpose drones and so on that are chasing, as you mentioned, chasing alligator, hugely expensive alligator helicopters. Do you think that a, a, could be a future in the US Air Force, seeing drones carrying grenades flying about the place? Thank you. Well, on the first question, what have we learned from the war and what have I learned from the war? So I, I've been to Ukraine twice this year. I'm going back in two weeks. The first time I was in Kiev, the second time I was in Krematorsk in the Chasavyar area right outside of Bakhmut in May. And the U.S. government has a, a prohibition on government contractors, active duty military, uh, government employees from traveling to Ukraine. And I don't fall under any of those categories. And uh, 
my bosses wanted me to make sure it was clear that the uh, United States Air Force Academy and the foundation do not uh, pay for my trips to Ukraine, um, privately funded. Uh, but the, the things that I have learned on the ground, being with the soldiers, I had dinner in Chasov Yar with a group of soldiers that had just left Bakhmut and their pickup truck got hit by an RPG on the way to dinner. The things that they told me and the lessons that I learned about just tactics, I don't think uh, this administration is enabling our DOD to capture those lessons. I know in the war colleges and the military academies, there are no uh, academics that are uh, studying these on the ground. There's a couple of think tankers that are doing some work in the front lines, uh, obviously some journalists, but I think we're missing a huge opportunity here. And I'll just give you a quick story uh, that you're probably familiar with. The Soviets had 3,000 advisors in Vietnam. Uh, they were there to help train the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, but they were also there to suck up information about U.S. military and their equipment. And this is a bit anecdotal, but up until the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the Israelis were very successful in beating the Arab states. Um, after, at the end of the Vietnam War in 1973, um, that was the first time the Arab states got the advantage on the Israelis. And I, we don't know what the Soviets learned from Vietnam, uh, but obviously the Israelis were using U.S. equipment. Uh, the Arab states were using Soviet equipment, so they must have learned something. And I think we are just missing a huge opportunity uh, not allowing military advisors from the U.S. into country, go to the front lines, learn from the soldiers, uh, from the people flying drones, uh, from whatever's left of their Air Force. Yeah, I think that's a big missed opportunity. And, and if it's because of escalation, they're worried about escalating and having Americans killed with F-16s and soon to be at ATACMs, I, I don't think that's an issue. So let's move to our final thoughts. I don't know who would like to go first. Uh, Francis Denley, uh, you're also in Washington with me. Would you like to go first? Well, thanks, David. Yesterday, our US growth editor, Jamie, threw us in at the deep end and took us to an NFL game, the scale and scope of which was simply staggering from the perspective of someone whose football team, or should I say soccer team, Norwich City, only fits about 27,000 people into its home ground. The Washington Commanders Stadium, by contrast, had a capacity of over 80,000, and the game began with not only fireworks, but a full fly past. It was a cauldron of noise and spectacle. I felt rather like a Celtish barbarian taken from provincial Britannia to see the Colosseum in Rome. I mention this because one of the most striking things about it was the injection of the military into the proceedings, the gratitude for the service to the nation. And it got me thinking whether one day we will see the same in Ukraine, whether those who fought in this war, which is already being called by some as the equivalent of their war of independence, will be lauded as heroes for the rest of their lives, or whether, as in Britain after the World Wars and in many other European countries, the collective suffering was so great that whilst the idea of victory was ever present, the active participants were content with the shadows and the country will want to forget, at least for a time. It will surely depend on the outcome, but what seems certain regardless is that Ukraine after this war will remain a society with a strong military culture and many former participants, something that will have significant political ramifications both in the short and the long term 
particularly if there is discontent with the outcome. James Kilmer, can I come to you? Hi, David. Well, obviously this week, uh, the big story from Russia is going to be the, the, the appearance of Kim, the uh, North, North Korean leader in Vladivostok. I think that's due to happen on Wednesday. As Francis was saying, Putin's at an economic forum, economic conference in Vladivostok. Now he's, he's been given a few speeches. I've been watching them uh, based around sort of economic development and releasing some new cargo ships, tankers to deal with the Arctic uh, area. So that, that really is the big uh, story. And we're expecting some sort of arms deal to be done. Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, was in North Korea in July looking at factories over there, arms factories over there. So I think that's definitely on the cards. And I think that is going to be a very major deal. The only other little, the only other sort of thing that, that, that I want to remind readers of is a, a, a pet interest of mine is Armenia spinning out of the Kremlin's orbit, out of the Kremlin's control. Today is the first day of a nine day long uh, military exercise with the US. The US have got about 85 soldiers coming over uh, to Armenia, and, and uh, Armenia's got about double that number. First time, I think, and this would be great if you guys in Washington can nail this one down for me, but I think it's the first time that in the independent in history they've had a US military exercise in, on their territory. And uh, the Kremlin has predictably said it's concerned and is going to proceeding. I would expect a fairly serious backlash at some point. Let's wait and see. Thank you. Well, thank you, Francis and James. Francis in Washington, James in the UK. Let's go to Kiev. Roland Oliphant, what are your final thoughts? I was very interested just to listen into that discussion that Tom was hosting about drones because it's not a kind of, you know, an on-off change. It's been a gradual change. But since I was last here last time, one of the first things that I was told by a, a friend, a Ukrainian journalist, who's very, very experienced around here, he said, look, if you are going, if you're going anywhere near the front, FPV drones are now the danger. And it's really changed in the past few months. I've spoken to a few people about this. Both sides are using them. And of course, on this side of the lines, you have to worry about the Russian ones. The kind of word on the street, as it was, is that the Russians will put these things up. If they can't find a, they can't find a tank or an APC or an obviously military thing, they don't want to bring it back. You can't land. Well, I don't know if maybe they can land a, a suicide drone after it's been taken off without using it. But they, the thing is, they are thought to go looking for any kind of target. So we've been told to be extremely careful on the roads, at 10, 20 kilometers from the front. Their range is increasing. The Russians are definitely experimenting with putting up kind of all-land drones as repeater stations, so you've got an even further range. And the corollary of that is that I've been speaking to people serving with the Ukrainian armed forces who are talking about going off to do FPV drone training, and huge numbers of people doing this because it is really seen as it's it, it's kind of coming to dominate um, the fighting. I mean, let's not pretend that you know infantry fighting and armored fighting and all that goes away. But nonetheless, you know, you can have one guy um, flying one of these drones who could account for half an infantry company if he gets lucky with these things. So those those weapons are really becoming a dominant part, not just an add-on, not just a kind of small interesting feature, but a kind of defining part of the battle space here. And with that goes all of the kind of electronic warfare, all of the kind of looking for a gap in the enemy's electronic warfare to get drones through and all of that. Um, so a very, very complex thing. I was very interested to kind of um, 
hear that discussion. Well, thank you very much, Francis in Washington, uh, James in the UK, and Roland, thank you so much for calling in from Ukraine. I hope to hear you again soon and do stay safe. Dom, let's go to Colorado with you. What are your final thoughts and your guests? We're here at the Air Force Academy, which is a four-year residential academy for the men and women who go on to join the U.S. Air Force and the Space Force. But many of them, so it's 18 to 22, that kind of age. So many of the people here and who will be at Fort Carson shortly for the 9-11 commemoration ceremony were not born on 9-11. And it's just, I think it's rather interesting to think about the age of people coming through and the changed nature of air and space power. So I just asked uh, General Stilwell, I invite him again to answer, has the last pilot been born? Yeah, Dom, that's a really uh, painful question to answer. But the answer is no, actually, because the spectrum of war uh, still goes all the way from low-level um, you know, skirmishes up to major theater warfare. So the use of the F-16 compared to an F-35 or a stealth, other stealth platforms is probably less viable at this point. However, if you look at what Taiwan's doing today, they still have to go intercept all those PLA uh, Air Force and uh, aircraft that are penetrating their uh, air defense identification or who risk or potentially threaten to attack Taiwan. So th- those fourth generation capabilities are still necessary, although in smaller numbers than when I grew up when we're thinking about fold the gap. I'm amazingly, I'm impressed by the cadets here and how mature they are because unlike me who wanted to go emulate Tom Cruise in the first Top Gun, when I came through here, they are thinking in larger terms in terms of information and space and UAVs and the like. So uh, my hat's off to them for their open minds and maturity. It's a joy to teach them and I mean that sincerely and I have great hope for the future. Tony, any last thoughts? Uh, we Since 2018, we've given Ukraine thousands of night vision goggles. They need hundreds of thousands. And I think that would be the most impactful thing that we could supply them. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are me, David Knowles, and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.